Welcome to the Church Basement Podcast. Today's topic is ELCA, Church Structure. Grab a cup of coffee or tea, strap on those running shoes, or pick up your knitting needles and join us. Let us introduce ourselves. I am Pastor Amanda Zensalo, and it is my honor to serve as the pastor of Central Lutheran Church in Northeast Portland, Oregon. And I'm Don Miller, a member here at Central and the producer of the podcast. Let's start with what does ELCA stand for? Oh, a great place to start. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Okay. It is a denomination of Lutheran Christians, and it was formed in the late 70s out of three previous denominations, the LCA, the ALC, and the ELC. Okay. All various and sundry forms of what became then this alphabet soup of ELCA. Okay. So they all said, you know, we're pretty similar. Let's just group together. Exactly. Okay. Was that to make what easier? Well, it's nice to have an overarching body. So the benefits of being a denomination with a large church structure the way that we have, so we have a national church body that we kind of have a hierarchical structure that allows us to have a big overarching body. And the benefit of that is things like a publishing house. Okay. So instead of one church trying to publish books on their own, As a denomination of many thousands of members, we own a publishing house. And then that publishing house is able to do things like publish curriculums. And Okay, so you're not necessarily talking Bibles. You're talking hymnals and that kind of stuff? Exactly. So like our hymnals or specific curriculums that are going to benefit different parts of our faith that are in keeping with our tradition. So Sunday school curriculum, confirmation curriculum, and maybe even vacation Bible school stuff. Oh, vacation Bible school. Those kinds of different pieces. It's expensive to do that on your own as a church or even as a, you know, as a statewide church. But when you're talking about gathering up national funding and everybody pooling their resources, then we can do a lot more together. And so these three fairly large-sized denominations came to agreements that they were able to share their polity, their understanding of how church works, those different kinds of pieces, and then pool in together. The other thing that that allows is that we share clergy. Okay. Clergy are on what is called a roster, and the clergy roster is what basically is the list of clergy who are approved and have met the credentialing to be able to fill the role of clergy. We're making some changes at the national level. So we have rostered leaders now in the ELCA. Some of those are ordained as called to word and sacrament, which are pastors and clergy like myself. And some are consecrated and called to do word and service. And those are our deacons. But they're all rostered leaders on that national list. So with a national church body like the ELCA has, we're all credentialed to the same level across the entire country. So we all have to have the same degree and we all have the same kind of training. Not necessarily having to go through seminary. Yes, having to go through seminary. So yes, all of you. Absolutely. Deacons included. Absolutely. Okay. So there is a level of seminary education required to be on the ELCA's roster. Then the national church kind of holds our credentialing and screens people. And then they also supply our pension 
and oh, our healthcare, healthcare yep. and those kinds of pieces. And so that's part of the benefit of having a national organization is that we're able to negotiate for healthcare benefits for several hundred employees rather than a church having to negotiate for a single employee. Well, as a sure, pastor. You're, you're pooling resources. Precisely. Okay, so this started in the 70s. Has it changed remarkably since then? No, the denomination that we are currently a part of has not had any major, major shifts since that event. We've worked into new partnerships, and so we have something called full communion partnerships with some denominations. We're not necessarily saying that we believe everything that we are the same as another group that we're in full communion partnership with. But we say that we are close enough that we can share the table and we can even partner in formal ministries together and we can even share clergy. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I thought there was also some, like you can be a pastor at a, like a UCC church, Correct. United Church of Christ mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. a Lutheran church. And... and it'll cross. There are certainly nuances to each of the denominations that you would need to make yourself familiar with. But Technically, I could go serve at an Episcopalian church, or I could go and serve at a Presbyterian church. I would have a lot to learn <laughs> about the specifics of those denominations sure. before I could serve them well. But our training and our theology and our understanding of things is similar enough that that can happen. Sure. So when they decided to come together, the three groups... Did they make it a top-down structure or a bottom-up structure in terms of do you always get what the head of the church is saying on down, or does the congregation itself get to choose how things are going to go? The ELCA really does have a structure that is about empowering the local congregations and then the local congregation having oversight somewhat by these higher structures, but the higher structures are mostly there to be supportive structures. Okay. Our presiding Bishop Elizabeth Eaton doesn't come out and say, this is exactly what we're going to do, and therefore your churches have to do X, Y, Z. She might come out and have a statement on some topic, on some kind of social justice issue going on, but that doesn't mean that any local congregation has to agree with it. Okay. So with with that, the, the local congregation, as we've had conversation previous about how things change at the national level, the local congregation sends a resolution to the Senate Assembly, and then the Senate Assembly sends something to the National Assembly, and then things change at the higher level. So it really is from the grassroots of the denomination that things make their way up to the top to make changes. You know, I've not been in this denomination for very long, but throughout my entire time in this denomination, there's never been like a top-down edict. Okay. There have been big votes that have happened, but they've happened because they've been called for by the congregations. Okay. Well, it kind of begs the question then, why do you need that person and why do they necessarily have to be a pastor? I'm guessing the same way you have to have training to be a pastor, you would have to have training to be the bishop and then the bishop over everything. So the bishops are ordained pastors mm -hmm. who are elected and called to those positions at the synodical level. And the national bishop is elected and called during the national assembly. The credentials are simply that you are an ordained clergy person. Okay. That you're, that you're rostered pastor. 
So you understand the way that the church is going to work, even though you're not necessarily in charge of a specific church. You won't have a congregation that you are serving anymore because the congregation then that you serve is the larger structure, right? Okay. So the Bishop of Oregon serves all the churches of Oregon. So in essence, Bishop Dave's church is all of the congregations. Oh, sure. I can see how that works. And so he serves the congregations in a sense. And some congregations believe that the bishops have a lot more power than they actually do. Yeah. Like they'll get angry at their pastor and they'll call up the bishop and be like, do you know what my pastor's doing? You need to discipline this pastor. And the bishop's like, I get that you're angry that their sermon ran an extra 15 minutes too long, but there's nothing (laughs) I can can do do about that. Sorry. And, And that's where one of the other benefits of being a part of this larger structure is we have these things called constitutions. Oh, sure. And each individual congregation has a constitution. And the model constitution is supplied by the ELCA. So no matter what church you step into, as long as they are up to date with their constitution, which oftentimes doesn't happen, but if they are up to date, they will all function with the same basic principles. Okay. So that means that Things like Robert's Rules of Order will be observed in congregational meetings. Sure. And that can be from your small group meeting to your congregational meeting about the budget. It's going to run by Robert's Rules because that's what our model constitution says we're going to do. Okay. And that model constitution can be downloaded online. It's completely public. Anybody can look at it and you can see how basic structures of congregations are going to work. It says things like who owns the actual property of the building. Oh. What happens if you Never thought about that. try to leave the denomination? Who owns the property? Is it the denomination or is it the people? It will show how your basic council structure is going to be. A president, a vice president, a treasurer, a secretary, those kinds of pieces. Chapter 9 is all about the clergy, your rostered clergy leader, and what is expected of them. And then what could bring them up on charges? So if they have a financial or sexual impropriety, how you would bring them up on charges, what that looks like, what their rights are, what your rights are during the investigation and disciplinary proceedings, all of that is all in the Constitution. Oh, interesting. So those rights and that structure is consistent all around the country. Which I think is really helpful. I think so, too. So let's get back to the local church structure then. Who is running the church? I mean, beyond the obvious of the church secretary, which I think is probably a stereotype (laughs) that we're familiar with, who all is involved? Technically, according to our constitutions, the actual authoritative body of every congregation is the congregation. Oh, yeah. And so the congregational meeting which has to happen on an annual basis at a minimum, is really the controlling body of the congregation. Okay. Any major decisions, calling a pastor, setting a financial commitment of a certain amount of money, setting the annual budget, electing congregational leadership, all of that is done at the congregational meeting level. That has always fascinated me, trying to get something done by committee. Never seems to be the most efficient, but they managed to do it. That's right. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. And within the Constitution, one of the variables is what makes a quorum for your congregational meeting. Oh, so you have to have a majority? 
Well, you can say, you know, a quorum is 10% of your voting membership or 20% of your voting membership. Or you can set a hard number of what it is. Now, my previous congregations, we've set that percentage number and just made sure to maintain really clean records so we know what the percentage is. So say, you know, at that point, if we are going for 10% of the congregation in attendance is enough of a quorum to be able to pass a budget, then when your membership is 800 people, you need 80 people to show up for that meeting. And that seems like 80 people might be a good enough number, right? Uh Our congregation, our voting membership is right around 150, 175. We require 40 people. Okay. We said a hard number because it didn't feel right to say 10%. 17 people yeah. in our congregation could set the, right? And for the amount of people who are active in our congregation, getting 40 people to show up for a congregational meeting, even in the summer, is totally reasonable. There you go. Okay. So membership, this is something else I wanted to ask you about. Because mm-hmm. I don't remember this necessarily as a Catholic And I'm not sure it's because I was just too young to know that you actually applied for membership, but I know that you do it in the Lutheran church and to the point of transferring your membership from church to church whenever you move. And that was all completely new to me. So according to our constitutions, voting membership is someone who has joined the church. So you have to make the choice to join the church formally and has received communion and given a gift of record in the last two years. What's a gift of record? It can be a penny in an envelope with your name on it. Oh, okay. But it has to be something that is a financial gift of record that has your name attached. It could be a gift in kind, but it has to have your name attached. Okay. We have lots of regular visitors, lots of worshiping participants who have not officially joined as members. Well, this is what I wanted to get at as the distinction, because you can't just show up on your average whatever bonus Sunday that happens to have the congregational meeting and think you're going to vote. Exactly. So you have had to have made a choice and a commitment to be a part of that community in order to have a vote on some of these things. And it's really interesting. Membership in churches is shifting and changing. I mean, I think that's part of this shift and change at this 500-year marker. Mm-hmm is that joining a church means less and less to people. Lots of people are giving tons of time and effort and resources and passion and heart, but don't want to be listed as a member of the church. I believe that. And so it gets a little difficult to know who is a voting member and who is not technically a voting member, because there could be someone who's been attending every single week for two years sitting in the pew, but they're not a voting member because they've not chosen to sign on the dotted line. Well, and conversely, you can have somebody who's been a member for years, never shows up, shows up on the day of the vote, and how necessarily informed are they going to be? Precisely. And there have been many a church conflict where exactly that kind of situation happens, where you have members who have attended maybe once every other year who are not actively engaged in the congregation, but for whom this is their historical home church. Mm -hmm. And then factions and sides happen and things are getting messy. And then old friends contact old friends. And 
This We're is getting back vote. to how things get done by committee, which is always fascinating. Right. And you better show up on this day to vote with me. And we need to, you know, that kind of level of church conflict happens. Absolutely. And that kind of stacking the deck can happen because we're imperfect human beings. And I will say from experience that it is the congregations that do not have a current constitution and are not clear on their ground rules and boundaries. Oh, sure. That's going to get you into trouble. That most often hit open conflict. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I am actually pretty passionate about is making certain that constitutions and bylaws are up to date, understandable. Well, everybody's on the same page at that exactly. point. You know where you're. You know where you're going. You know where you're coming from. Exactly. So, back to that. The congregation is the one who's truly in charge. Now, the congregation, what they do is they elect leaders to handle the kind of month to month business of the church. So they nominate and they elect a church council. And then the constitution gives you two options. Either you can nominate all your council members, and then the council can elect their executive board at their first meeting, or the congregation can elect specifically for certain positions, the executive offices. The way that our constitution is set up, the congregation elects for president, vice president, financial secretary, and secretary of the congregation. All right. So they are members of the church. Mm Mm-hmm. Who are in charge of overseeing some of the more mundane aspects of just day-to-day running of it. Who's paying the mortgage? Who's in charge? Who gets to make all the decisions? Exactly, And they're the ones who actually sign contracts. Okay. Right? Like the president of the congregation is the one who can sign a contract to put the congregation in debt. <laughs> well, there's right? an interesting way to put it. Okay. Like, it's, it's not the pastor of the congregation who signs on a new mortgage. Because the pastor of a congregation is technically an employee and self-employed at the same time, right? So we're contracted, we're staff, we're called, and we are members of our congregation. So we had a vote at congregational meetings as a member. Okay. But we're not able to encumber debt for the congregation. That is fully on the congregational membership and the council. And so it's the president of the congregation or the treasurer who sign for those kinds of contracts, not the pastor. Interesting. Now, when it comes to the actual worship itself, I believe there's a worship committee. That is different by congregation. That's congregation to congregation. And has nothing to do necessarily with your constitution or that's called out in the constitution, which is different from congregation to congregation. It will be called out in the bylaws, which are different. Oh, my goodness. Which are different. I think I'm going to need a flow chart soon. Right? So the Constitution is really hard to change. It takes like a year and a half to two years to change your Constitution. So you don't want to put anything in your Constitution that you might need to change because somebody got sick. Sure. So your big overarching structure, all that's going to be in the Constitution. Now, things like worship committee and fellowship committee and who's setting up for coffee hour and how those committees run, you want to put those in your bylaws. Now, your congregation still has to vote at a congregational meeting on your bylaws. Okay. But you can call a congregational meeting whenever you need, so those can be changed. Not easy, but easy enough. Sure. So you can put in your bylaws that you will have a worship team 
that sets the structures of the worship in consultation with the pastor and will have three to five members serving in two-year terms, for example. Okay. Right? And then if it's a non-functional committee now, and that team isn't doing anything and not working, then you can bring it to the congregation easily enough to strike that wording from your bylaws. There's another level oh my called goodness. continuing resolutions. And the continuing resolutions can be changed with a vote at the council level. Okay. So say, for example, you're trying out a new ministry. And so you're going to put into the continuing resolutions, we support this new food bank ministry. It will run for six weeks on a trial basis and have four people overseeing it and will not exceed a budget of blah, 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 blah. And you put that into your continuing resolution. This is how it's going to work. And then if something needs to change, the council at a monthly council meeting can change that. Okay. Does that make sense? I, I, it makes sense. So as far as the actual people running the church, <laughs> you have a pastor, mm -hmm. you have the council, and that can be any number. I mean, I'm guessing you have your president, your vice president, and a secretary. And a treasurer. And a treasurer. Typically four people on exec, and then the pastor. And some congregations, the pastor is a voting member of that committee, and some congregations the pastor is not a voting member at the council level. I'm trying to distill here how many people you need. What is the baseline number to keep a church running smoothly? <laughs> what support do you need? Because we still haven't got to that church secretary yet. Yeah. Well, and again, it's going to depend on size. Any congregation running with more than 20 in average attendance on a Sunday probably is going to have a council of anywhere from six to 12 people okay. participating. Now, when you get a congregation with average attendance between four to 20 people, then it starts to get really hard to get your volunteers for a full council. Sure. Right? And then basically you're running everything by consensus. Okay. And oftentimes at that size of a level of a congregation, you either have a patriarch or a matriarch who's really running things. Okay. Or the pastor is the defunct person who's in charge of making things run. But once you get kind of up past that 2025 20, on an average Sunday attendance level, all the way up through the 199 mark, that's when you have a council of anywhere from six to 12 people kind of doing the hard work. Okay. The day-to-day -day admin stuff, making sure that the building is open and the bulletins are run and all those kinds of things, that falls to your staff. Okay. But the council is the one who's in charge of making sure the staff are supervised. Okay. And the staff does not have to be a member of the church. It's honestly preferred that they not be members of the oh, congregation. Oh, interesting. Because it's really, really hard when you have difficulties with your staff to also be their pastor. Sure. That makes sense. And or what really sucks is the day that you have to fire a member. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to go very well. It was awful. It was one of the worst days of my ministry. To this day, it was one of the worst days of my ministry when I had to fire my secretary, who was also a member of the congregation. Oh, that hurts. It was awful. It was awful. And that was in my first three years of ministry. I do not recommend it. Mm. I know that there are some congregations who really love the idea that their staff become members. To me... 
it's so much more helpful for staff to have outside worship communities that serve them as well, where they just get to go be fed and that they have their own pastor. Because if I'm their supervisor, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to be their pastor and Mm -hmm. their supervisor. That makes sense. We're lucky enough here at Central that currently all of our staff are members of other congregations Mm -hmm. and are very well served in their congregations Mm -hmm. and have great pastors, which is really cool. Yeah. And they're fabulous at their jobs, which is nice too. Absolutely. All right, then let's get to the last question. What is the most frustrating part of how the church works for you? (laughs) Well, I will just say this. And if you've listened to any of the podcasts, it comes up repeatedly. I'm still flabbergasted at this whole by committee thing. (laughs) Because although things always get done, it's just astounding to watch it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes time. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a slow process. You know, in some ways, it would be so much easier to run a church just by what used to be called hair pastor, the master pastor. Sure. Makes the decisions and all things flow from their decision, right? Well, yeah, but then you got to hope you get the benevolent dictator. Right, right. (laughs) So I know that it's really hard to share the burden of leadership in a more equal playing field, but I wouldn't trade it for the other side of that. It doesn't bring out the best in me as a leader anyway to overfunction and make big decisions. So as hard as it is, community organizing models are really powerful ways to lead a church. I think for myself, the most frustrating part about how the church works is when people don't understand it. Oh, sure. And people don't care to try to understand it. And so when people think that the Constitution doesn't matter and they don't maintain it, or when people don't really care about what it says in the bylaws and we'll just do what we want. I think because I have seen the cost of that Mm -hmm. and the cost is very real and very painful on long-term friendships and relationships and spiritual health and well-being, I think that that's probably my pet peeve is when people just don't care about it and don't care to keep it maintained. It is what creates a safe environment for us to take risks together and to push hard on living the gospel in the world. And so I think, yeah, I think that's my pet peeve is when people just don't care about it. Fair enough. Well, thank you, Pastor Amanda, for taking the time to help us learn a little more about the church structure. I look forward to sitting down with you another day on another topic. As do I. And thank you all for listening to this one of my favorite topics, but one that I know might cause people to sigh and roll their eyes a little bit. (laughs) Maybe yawn. (laughs) Maybe yawn a little bit. Imagine taking an entire week just on this in seminary. Wow. Anyway, thank you all for joining us today. It was wonderful to be with you. If you have questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can catch us on Facebook or send us an email at podcast at centralportland.org. Until we are back in your ears again. Remember, God loves you no matter what.